Well, the first memory I have of being afraid in the face of an adversary was from when I was about seven years old. I was uh, playing on a hill that sat right next to our house with my sister, who was about four years older than me, and her best friend, when across our path came two teenage boys, brothers actually, who happened to be the most notorious bullies in our little town. And so sure enough, they spotted us. They cornered us on one of the more, um, the larger rock formations on that hill, and they proceeded to do what they did best. They bullied us. I don't know how long it lasted. For a seven-year-old, it felt like it was a long time. But for a period of time, they mocked us and threatened us and just said all kinds of bad things to us. And as a seven-year-old boy, looking up at these you know, giant teenagers, I was scared to death. I didn't know what was going to happen to us, what they were going to do to us. My terrified little mind even began to wonder, am I going to make it out of here alive? Right? That's how little kids think in those situations. What I wanted more than anything in that moment was to be in my house that was down the hill across the path because I knew my, my parents were there and I'd be safe with them. Well, thankfully, after a little while, just in case you're wondering, they got a little bored, and in their distraction, my sister communicated a a plan of escape. On the silent count of three, we were going to jump off the back of that big formation to kind of run in different directions, and I can still literally see myself like I was a little boy when we took off running as fast as my little legs could take me down the hill. Sure, they were right behind me, ready to scoop me up and do who knows what running down the hill, across the path, across my front lawn, up our steps, through the front door, slammed the door, locked it, I leaned up against it, and I burst into tears. Tears of terror over what I just went through mingled with tears of relief because I was where I needed to be, in the four walls of my house where my parents were. I knew I was safe. Whatever plans those bullies may have had for me, the four walls of my home, the roof of my house, and the presence of my parents would keep me safe. So I lost just a little bit of my childhood innocence that summer afternoon as I began to discover for myself what all of us have come to know in this fallen world. As followers of Jesus, we will face adversaries, adversity, Challenges often in the face of adversaries that threaten our well-being and at times fill us with fear. Sometimes those adversaries may be people that oppose us or even persecute us in some way. Sometimes they're philosophies that tend to seem to threaten the heart of our faith. They may be difficult challenges that or trials that challenge our faith. They may be certain temptations to sin that we struggle with that are around us or that rise up from within our own hearts and desires, threaten our faithfulness to Jesus. Maybe the cultural things that are happening around us, and it seems like a lot of Christians are feeling a lot of anxiety and fear right now for different reasons, depending on their perspective. Often behind them all is the one that Scripture actually calls the adversary, the evil one himself, who opposes Christ, his kingdom, his people. These adversaries are realities for us as individuals, for families, 
as we follow Jesus and for local churches at Cornerstone. Now, as I look out at you this morning, I'm sure many of you could stand right now, come to the front, and give personal, powerful examples from your own life of this kind of experience from your past, or even perhaps right now, an experience you're going through that's hard, that's challenging you, that's filling you with fear and anxiety because of some adversary or perceived adversary, and it can raise a lot of questions in our hearts. Questions like, how are we going to make it through this? How am I going to endure? How can I stay faithful to Jesus in this day of adversity? Well, in our day of adversity, like I needed as a child, what we need more than anything is to find safety and rest in the faithful presence of God in our lives, in our families, in our churches. And so this morning we're going to learn from the experience of King David, a man who lived much of his life in mortal danger. He knew what it meant to face adversity, opposition, persecution. In fact, many of his most beautiful and powerful psalms were written right out of those contexts, including our text this morning that Pastor Rob read, Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, David describes how he persevered in faith despite the presence of these very dangerous circumstances and adversaries in his life, and despite, as you, we read earlier, vacillations in his own faith. He was going back and forth a little bit between this confident expression of faith and some fearful doubt, which I think we can relate to. So the main point of Psalm 27 could be expressed this way, and it'll be the main point of the message. Persevere in the face of fearful opposition by confidently trusting the Lord and seeking His presence. Persevere in the face of fearful opposition by confidently trusting the Lord and seeking His presence. Now we're going to spend more of our time in the first six verses, so don't get too nervous if you're looking at your watch at at that point. But let's consider point number one, verses one through three, confidently trust in the Lord. Confidently trust in the Lord. When we face opposition, I don't know about you, but my tendency is to focus on the adversity itself. I can easily begin to imagine all the ways in which that threatens me, my family, our church community. And when I do, what's happening is the adversity is growing larger and larger in my mind. And it's like it's almost masking the reality of God and his faithfulness. And so he's becoming more and more distant to us. And when that happens, fear and anxiety can just take hold of our hearts and cripple us. But in verses 1 through 3 here, David models for us a different approach. He begins his psalm with this bold and definitive focus, not on the adversity, but on the person and work of the Lord on his behalf. Notice verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, as we look at verse 1, don't overlook the first two words, the Lord, all in caps. David uses the personal covenant name for God, which is Yahweh. David's confident faith expressed in the beginning of this psalm doesn't, it begins not with a distant God who he hopes will protect him, but rather with a God who'd already extended gracious covenant 
faithful love to him and to God's people by being the, a God who enters into personal relationship with David and with God's people. So this entire psalm is going to spring out of David's personal experience of a God who is loyal in his covenant love. And then David reflects on three aspects of who the Lord is on his behalf. He says, the Lord is my light, my salvation, and the stronghold of my life. So right in the midst of the anxiety, which was very real as you read through the psalm, and you see these adversaries who were a serious threat to his well-being, and by extension to the Davidic throne and the work that God was doing through it, he says, the Lord is my light, which means he was looking to God to provide guiding illumination within the darkness of the approaching danger, enabling him to correctly interpret his adversity and adversaries from God's perspective. As salvation, he was looking to God to be the one who would deliver him from danger. And as the stronghold of his life, he's looking for God to be the place of ongoing refuge and safety in the midst of his adversaries. Not just an emergency shelter to run to, but an ongoing stronghold in which he would live his life. Now, as you think about that verse, notice two ways that David highlights how personal this is to him. First, David doesn't say the Lord gives light, gives salvation, gives us a stronghold. It's so much more glorious than that. David says the Lord, the Lord is my light. He, the Lord, is my salvation. He is my stronghold. It's in Him personally and directly that we experience these things. God Himself gives Himself to us as these things. And then second, notice David didn't reduce this to a set of theological facts on the left side of his brain. These were realities that he had personally appropriated for himself by faith in response to God offering this to his people. The Lord is my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. And so for us today, as we think about David's faith, his words are fulfilled for us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's revealed, John eight twelve to be our light, the light of the world, who is the one in whom we have salvation, deliverance, Colossians 1.14, and in whose life we are hid in God, Colossians 3.2. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of David's faith in God as his light, salvation, and stronghold. So in the day of your adversity, when you're filled with anxiety and fear, when there's opposition around you that are, is creating anxiety for you as an individual, for your family, or for you as a church community, don't allow yourself to become fixated on this fearful opposition itself. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. Intentionally remind yourself and each other and your family and in your church family who Jesus is for you. And then by faith, hold on. Ensure he's your light, your salvation, your stronghold. And then notice what happens. Having reflected on who God was for him, look what he concludes in verse 1. Since he's light, salvation, and stronghold, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? Notice this high theology about the person of God applied right to the everyday life of David. Since God is this, 
Why, who am I going to be afraid of? It's like he put all his adversaries as real and dangerous as they were on one side of the scale, and he put who God is on the other, and it wasn't even a contest. Why are we as God's people living in such fear, even today with all the uncertainty of our world? God is our light and salvation and stronghold. What are we afraid of? Verse 2. Having looked up in the day of adversity to remind himself about the person of the Lord, David then looks back to reflect on the Lord's past work on his behalf. Look at verse 2. When evil, now, now some of your translations translate this a little differently. Is this a potential or is this a past? It seems like the best translation is it's a past. When evildoers assailed him to <clears throat> eat up his flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. This verse is poetically structured to portray the drama of the event. Men identified as evildoers, adversaries, and foes to David were attacking him, coming closer to him with the, the, the design of consuming him. But in a dramatic, and in the text, implied surprising turn of grace, rather than them consuming their desire to destroy David, it was they who fell. Which I have a section here that points us to Jesus as a beautiful fulfillment of this. I'm going to skip it. shouldn't have even told you that. But I want to point it out because when we read the Davidic Psalms, remember that David, in a sense, is always foreshadowing the ultimate David, the true king of Israel. And as we think about Jesus, whose entire life was characterized by the evil adversary seeking to stumble and fall, cause him to fall, it was they who, in the end, through his death and resurrection, stumbled and fell as Jesus died and rose again to defeat our great enemies. So a few things will be of greater use to strengthen your faith in your day of adversity than remembering those times in your life when God has already demonstrated his loving, powerful grace on your behalf. So Christian and church, remember, start with the greatest demonstration of his power and love on your behalf when God has saved you. You have experienced no greater display of God's power for you than when he saved you from the greatest enemies and adversaries of your soul, sin and death. There's no greater enemy we face. And he's already delivered us from that. He has literally transferred you from the kingdom and domain of darkness into citizenship of his beloved son's kingdom. He's literally taken your stony heart and replaced it with a heart of flesh that responds and loves God. He's raised you up from spiritual death into spiritual life that will go on forever. And so when you face opposition as a church, as a family, as an individual, remind yourself of the great deliverance God's already extended to you. And from there, you can reflect on the many ways since then that God has sustained your life, the spiritual growth, the protection, the deliverance that he continues to extend to you by his powerful grace. So in verse 1, David reflects upon who God is, and then in verse 2, on what he has done. And again, this has a dramatic impact on his perspective. Look at verse 3. David says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise right up against me, right where I am. Yet, 
I'll be confident. No matter the extent or nearness of the danger and threat, David would continue to confidently trust the Lord. Reminds us of Romans 8. Where are you in your Romans series? You're getting close there? You're going to be, ah, this is my favorite chapter in Scripture, I think. Since God is so clearly and evidently for us, who can be successfully and ultimately against us? That's what David is saying here. And that brings us to point two, verses four through six. Don't just trust in the Lord, but fervently desire the Lord. So picture David on the run, exiled from Jerusalem, his life clearly in extreme danger. In this circumstance, you might expect that the supreme desire right on the top of his mind and his heart would be, I need to escape. I need to be delivered from these enemies, which he clearly wants. I want to see them defeated. I want to be back in the comforts of palace life. I want to see my earthly family again. Look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. Set early, first in the verse for emphasis. One thing. David is, isn't saying he doesn't ask the Lord for anything else, otherwise he would contradict himself in a couple verses. In using this phrase, one thing, what David is doing is speaking to the one great surpassing longing of his soul that surpassed every other heart desire in this man after God's own heart. And for David, this was to dwell, to live, to abide in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Now, God, of course, is everywhere at once and was, is today and was then. But for God's people Israel, his presence was particularly manifest in the temple, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where God in particular met and manifested himself with his people. And that's why David wanted to be there. In his day of adversity, what he longed for most was to be where God was, to know God's presence in his life. So adversity can do a couple things. It can reveal idols in our life by what emerges in our desires and longings, what we think we need most in that day of adversity. And here it reveals, in David's case, that the driving pulse of his life, which we see all through the Psalms, is, I want your presence, God. Or it can serve as a helpful correction and reminder to us. Those of us who, by God's grace, do desire his presence, but in this world and life, it's easy for us to get a little off course in our priorities. But sometimes those days of adversity can kind of reset us and remind us, what I need most is you, God, your presence. And so it's a good diagnostic question to ask ourselves in our day of adversity. What is emerging as my heart's desire? What is, the, what I, what is it that I long more than, for more than anything? What is it that our church community in our adversity is obsessed with and longs for? What does David want to do in the presence of God? Well, look at verse 4 again. And depending on your translation, there's two ways of, of translating this, which I'll mention in a moment. But he says he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. 
NASB in, uh, translates that idea of seeking as meditate. In fact, the ESV, if you have that Bible, has it as a footnote, meditate or ponder. And that seems to be the, the, the better a nuance of what this word means. The idea is he wants to see and gaze upon the beauty of God and then think and ponder deeply that beauty in his own heart. So David longed to be in God's presence, to just gaze upon his beauty and then think about what he's seeing. What a phrase, the beauty of the Lord. What is, how do you even define that phrase? You could define it as the, the radiant expression or display of the beauty and glory of all that God is. It just shines forth in all its glory. Over in Psalm 26, verse 8 David says, this isn't, see, this wasn't unique to Psalm 27, Psalm 26, 8. Lord, I love the house where you dwell. That's where you are, and that's why I love it. Notice what he says at the end of 26, 8. The place where your glory resides. There's nothing in this entire universe that begins to remotely compare and I, I'm, I'm putting some words together, not to sound smart, but to try to capture something of what this means that, that doesn't even compare to the infinitely glorious, mesmerizingly beautiful, jaw-dropping, soul-captivating radiance display of the beauty and glory of who God is. Without exception, anything your soul desires in this world pales in comparison to the beauty and glory of the God who is. In fact, this is the great gift of God to human, humanity. Starting in Eden, it was the great tra- trauma of what we lost because of sin, but it's the great hope of our ultimate restoration in Revelation. The Lord will dwell with his people. This is the great gift of God to us. The great reward of salvation is God himself given to us. The one for whom we were created and designed. The treasure of treasures, as one person put it, the all-satisfying end of our longings. So in your day of adversity, during the trial that's stretching you beyond imagination, beyond what you think you can handle, what we really need more than anything is to know and be in the presence of the Lord, gazing upon his beauty, thinking upon his glory. In the midst of the temptation for which you think there's no hope, the temptation that's burying you under the guilt of condemnation, what you need more than anything is the presence of the Lord, gazing and meditating on his beauty. Now, David says he's going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, specifically in the temple. Of course, we know that the beauty of God is revealed in many places, including Scripture. But David speaks of the temple in particular. And as I think about that, I think he's thinking about the beauty of God tangibly expressed through the means of grace on display in the temple as he's there. Think of the different parts of the temple that speak so beautifully, metaphorically, to the reality of who God is for his people. David would see the means of grace and the beauty of God displayed through the the Jewish worship liturgy as God's people gathered corporately to worship him 
as Scripture was read and sung. But most of all, I think David is seeing the beauty of God in the temple as the sacrifices are being offered, the redemptive sacrifices. The sacrifices put on display the beauty of God's holiness and grace and love. The death of the animal in the temple revealing the blazing holiness and purity of a God who cannot abide the presence of sin, and yet in the very act of sacrifice, even as the animal is being slain, the beauty of God's immeasurable love and grace being displayed through the provision of a substitutionary sacrifice to die in the place of the sinner. Beautiful glory of God. So what we need and and what our heart really longs for in the brokenness of this world is we think, oh, I wish everything was right in in my life, in my family, in our church, in our world. What we really are longing for is the presence of this great God. But you know what the good news is for us today? David's longing for the presence of God to be the continual reality of his life has been fulfilled for us beyond our imagination. First, the New Testament actually refers to individual believers as the temple of God because his spirit literally dwells within us. Is that mind-blowing? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we are united to Christ who by faith has given us his spirit to indwell in us. And so the presence of God is always with us. Every moment, every day, wherever we are, whatever we face, God is graciously there. That's why Jesus was able to promise in Matthew 28, hey, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age, until I return again, I'm there with you. How is that possible? Miracle. The Spirit indwells you. How about Hebrews 13, 5? Christ says, I will never, no, never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently savor and trust his presence every moment of our lives. Secondly, though, the church, the New Testament refers to the church corporately as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Peter 2.5. So as you're part of a church community and as you gather together corporately like we are this morning, that the Spirit is with us corporately in a special and unique way, dwelling with his people in the church. So together you're gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and thinking about its significance as you participate together in worship through song, through scripture reading, through prayer, through the ordinances, through the sermon. This is why we don't forsake the gathering of the church. He's present also as we gather in smaller pieces of that church. So remember that even as you're sitting blurry-eyed sometimes across someone over a cup of coffee for fellowship in the morning, maybe not right now, but the Spirit is with His church. But then third and most glorious of all, Jesus is the true and ultimate temple. The fullness of God dwells in Him, Colossians 1.19-2.9. So Jesus Himself, Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature. For us to gaze and consider the beauty of God is for us to gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, this has incredibly important implications for the church, does it not? 
This is why I know your pastor and leadership here leads this church to be an intentionally Christ-centered church. Not trying to promote a personality, not trying to promote a brand, not trying to impress people with cultural relevance or entertainment, setting forth the beauty and glory of Jesus and all his radiant beauty. That's why I know your pastor is leading your church to be a word-driven church. Scripture is ultimately about the beauty of Jesus. And so as you corporately and personally study, proclaim, and meditate on the word, you're, you're looking and seeing and gazing upon Christ. And that's why your leadership is seeking to be gospel-proclaiming. Like the sacrifices of old, the, the, the climax of the beauty of Christ is when Christ hung on that cross displaying the beauty, the full measure of God's holiness, so great that only God himself could fully satisfy God's wrath against sin. And yet there, on the tree, displays the immeasurable love of God for sinners. God himself would lay down his life for us, bearing the guilt and shame and curse that our sin earned and deserves, so that whoever would see Jesus and trust in his sacrifice for them would experience forgiveness of sins and new hope in life as one of God's adopted sons and daughters. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're listening out there, this is the heart of the gospel and of the the message of the Bible, that God has provided a means for you to know God's presence once again. And so as you lift up the sun here in your midst at Cornerstone, as you behold his beauty, the Spirit will not only increasingly transform you as a community into his image, but will draw many to himself. So my prayer for this church is that you would enjoy and steward well the unspeakable privilege of living life in the presence of God through the Spirit that indwells you and through the person of Christ who is the temple of God through whom you are joined and you are complete in him. And I would say to you, Christian friend, or the one who hasn't yet found your hope in Jesus, I would say, I hope your eyes are open to the beauty of God in Christ for you. I hope you see that the deep longing in your soul that's just hardwired into your DNA as a human being is a longing for God himself, to know him, to be in his presence, not for God's lesser gifts that we enjoy, from food and pleasure and comforts to family and meaningful work. All those things, as one writer said, Jonathan Edwards, are but streams intended to lead you to the ocean that is God himself, the one for whom you were created. So all our efforts to satisfy the longing in our soul will come up short if they aren't leading us to God. Jesus is the living water by whom the thirst of your soul will finally be quenched. Now, how does this connect with the broader context of the psalm? Well, notice verse 5. He says in verse 4, I I want the presence of God. I want to see his beauty and think deeply about it. Why does he want that? Well, in the context of the the danger he was facing, verse 5, for he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity, in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me upon a rock. So David, under siege from the enemy, knows that he's safe in God's presence. The quickest path to being safe is the presence of a safe person, right? Think of a child who is afraid, 
but then mom or dad is like I was when I was a kid in that situation. But even in a smaller way, hey, the, the, I remember when one of my kids was going through a time of fear uh, with the darkness in the room. And he didn't ask me to put the light on. He said, would you stay in the room with me? As long as I was there, even if the darkness was present, he felt okay and would fall asleep because I was a safe, trustworthy person to my child. This is God to us. And David says, as long as I'm with God and and he's present with me, I will be okay. He will deliver me. He will set me high so the enemy can't ultimately get to me. So David is so confident in God's shelter and grace that he imagines what he'll do when he experiences deliverance from his adversaries. Look at verse 6. He says, My head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So David is just thinking deeply in this danger, and he's imagining deliverance, and he's saying, man, when that deliverance comes, I am going to celebrate loudly. I'm going to offer God exuberant praise for his deliverance. If you had a host of enemies seeking out your very life, and against all earthly odds, those very enemies were divinely thwarted and defeated. Can you imagine yourself engaged in vibrant expression of worship to the Lord? You would probably holler and hoop and jump up and down. Maybe not. We're all different personalities. I remember back in, listen, I remember you know, the 28-3 to 3 game, right, Patriot fans? I literally remember, I was at a friend's house, and... I, when, when we won, I literally jumped into the arms of my friend, full weight. Okay? Maybe not my best moment. But I was exuberant over an unlikely football game comeback. Isn't it good and appropriate for we who have been rescued from the most fearful enemy of humanity, sin, death, and hell, to express exuberant praise both privately in our own lives and families and corporately as we gather for public worship? Isn't that appropriate? And that's what David is imagining. So David entrusts himself to the Lord and desires his presence where he knows he'll be safe. He's a model of undeterred faith in the midst of adversaries, right? Verses 1 through 6, but not so fast. The third point today is to expect ongoing struggles with doubt and fear. There's a dramatic shift in verse 7, and it's so encouraging to me personally. Because you see this incredible example and say, oh, I wish that was me in trials, but I don't always feel that way. But then you see, well, David didn't always feel that way either. He says, verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. Clearly, David begins to, something happens in his heart where now he's suddenly worrying not about God's ability to save him, but about the loss of God's presence. As long as he has God in his presence in his life, he knows he's fine, but then suddenly he begins, it's almost like maybe the evil one's whispering in his heart, why do you deserve God's presence? What makes you think he's going to be on your side? You're in exile here. Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe God's not for you. Whatever's happening in his heart, he's expressing this sudden fear and anxiety about perhaps God forsaking him because he recognizes in himself he's not worthy of God's deliverance. That's encouraging that David puts this in the corporate prayer and worship book for God's people. The raw realness of the ups and downs of our journey as we battle for faith and sometimes aren't experiencing it. Oftentimes we like to put on the the facade, to be honest, that We've got it covered. 
when in reality in our heart we're really struggling with anxiety and doubt. And David here puts it all out there and he cries out to God for him not to abandon. We understand that. He goes through this period of discouragement. What do we do when we're in those moments of discouragement? Well, we should expect them and when they come, we need to respond to those moments of doubt. And this is your fourth point if you're keeping notes, by pressing, continuing to press into God. He doesn't run away from God in his doubt. He doesn't put up a facade with God or others. He's real, and he expresses humble, earnest prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He appeals to God's undeserved favor. Be kind and gracious to me. Give me what I don't deserve. Hear me when I cry out to you. And then he does this really cool thing there. He does this little play where he says, you've said, seek my face. That's plural. It's probably maybe Deuteronomy 4. It's some place where God has commanded his people to be a people who seek him. And so he says, at your invitation, you've called us and invited us to seek after you. And so by grace, I've responded to that with an affirmative, yes, I will seek you. So he's almost reminding God of his, his initiating grace to him and of the promise he has given him. And he says, now when I seek you in your face, don't hide it from me. What an incredible thing that we have a God who invites us into his presence. A God who, who is personal and relational and says, seek my face, my presence. And then notice verse 9. He appeals again to the person and work of the Lord. He, call, he refers to God as his help and the God of his salvation. So you are my help, you're my salvation, the very things he expressed in his time of confidence earlier in verses 1 and 2, he comes back to in his time of doubt. He doesn't waver. He clings to the thing he celebrated when he was feeling confident. Now when he's doubtful, he clings to the very same thing. He, he maintains this gospel-centered paradigm. I'm looking to the person work of the Lord, and that's what I'm hoping in. Remember, this is who you are for me, God. This is my only hope. But then in verse 10, it's almost like he has this gospel, what I call a gospel awakening in verse 10. I love this. Verses 7 through 9 is a prayer. Verses 11 and 12 is a prayer. Verses 10 is something a little bit different. It's like a reflection. And the translations differ a little bit in this. The ESV is a little bit stronger in saying his parents did forsake him. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Others say, for even if my father and mother would forsake me. If even that would happen, the most extreme abandonment you could imagine, the Lord will never do that. So as he's struggling with doubt and fear and God, don't abandon me, it's like suddenly the Spirit awakens him to this beautiful gospel reality. God will never abandon you. He will take you in. This is the same uh, word that's used in Joshua 20 when it describes the city of refuge, when someone would come to the gates and explain the situation and ask for refuge, and it would receive, the, the, the elders of the city would receive him into the city of refuge. It's the same language used here. God will take us up and receive us into his presence. Some translations interpret this as God cares for me. The point is that God's love exceeds all others. And though everything around us might feel like it's opposed to us and we're, we're afraid and people are disappointing us and close people are betraying us and even my closest family relationships let us down, David 
remembers God never does. Never. I'm okay. And that kind of changes his tone. Because you look at verse 11 and 12, and the tone of his prayer now gets more to, Lord, I need your wisdom. Verse, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I know I have your presence. You're not going to abandon me. So, Lord, show me your way. Not my way, Lord. He's not praying, Lord, help me have my way right now. He's saying, Lord, teach me your way in the midst of this trial. You lead me on, on the, your level path. And then he asks for God's protection. Verse 12, don't give me up to the will of my adversaries. And that brings us to the last point, verse 13 and 14. Courageously wait on the Lord. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. So David starts with confidence. He goes through a serious season of doubt and fear. He's reminded, why am I afraid? The Lord cares for me. He will receive me and never abandon me. So Lord... Show me your way. I'm ready to continue to follow. And then it results back in this expression of confident assurance. I am certain. I know in my heart that I am going to see God's goodness in the land of the living. For him, that probably meant the land of the literal living there, that he felt like, yes, God is going to preserve me and my kingship for God's people here now. Of course, we see in this an even more beautiful fulfillment in the ultimate land of the living, those with eternal spiritual life that God gives us. And so as God's people today, whatever happens to us in this world, whatever opposition, persecution, fearful experience, even to the ultimate, which you'll talk about in Romans 8, even death, it won't separate us from the love of Christ. We will be in the land of the living forever. In God's presence, where life exists and death has no place. And so assured of God's power, presence, and love, he waits on the Lord. Wait for the Lord, verse 14. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So he ends the, the psalm with this sandwich of waiting on the Lord in the middle. Here's what we do as we wait for the Lord. We're strong and we're taking courage in him as we wait for him. Waiting is one of the most challenging skills of the Christian life, isn't it? We want God to act according to our timetable, according to our plan, according to what's so clear to us. I mean, isn't it obvious what should happen in this situation, God? So do it. Now, waiting and hoping are kind of wound together like the strands of a rope. Hope, expectation in God and what God is doing and what God is going to ultimately do. So we are able to endure time in which our prayers or desires aren't yet culminated because we're confident and we're trusting in God's ultimate answer in timing. We're submitted to His will. So Psalm 139 verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. And there's something to learn there about waiting. The watchman is waiting for the morning knowing it's coming knowing his shift is over, knowing daylight is uh, around the corner. It's, he knows it's coming, so he's patiently enduring the night. We know God's got this. We know what's coming, and so we endure with strength and courage in him, seeking his presence, because he does all things well. Again, as you'll see in Romans 8, the most important thing about us is secure forever. God is literally working everything together for our ultimate good, his ultimate purpose for us, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. 
and that Jesus would be exalted among his brethren. And not one single thing we experience in life, death, sword, persecution, famine, opposition, can separate us from what's most important, our union with Jesus. Nothing. It's, it's settled. And so we can wait on him. We can trust him with strength and courage. So brothers and sisters, much opposition awaits as we live life in this world. In those moments, our words and actions can be shaped by fear of these adversaries, and at times they will. We may be tempted to be silent when we should speak. We may be tempted to be ungracious, as you read earlier, when we, sh- when we should be, our moderation should be known to all men. We may be tempted to inaction when we must act. We may be tempted to deny Christ when we must confess him. We may be tempted to unethical or sinful behavior when we must maintain our integrity. We may be tempted to withdraw from God's people and God's presence when we need to press more deeply than ever into where God's spirit dwells. God is clearly for you. So fight those temptations by remembering. By remembering that Christ has given himself to you as light, salvation, and refuge. Humans may hurt you. Trials may affect you. The world culture may oppress you. You may lose a friend, a reputation, a promotion, a job. But in the end, no one can touch what's most important. So in those moments when your heart is convinced of the realness of God, what he has given you in himself, you will find your soul fortified to be unshakable. Still be hard, but you're going to be able to keep going. You're going to find that you're not afraid because God is for you. Father, thank you so much for this incredible psalm, this incredible testimony of David. Lord, we confess our own weakness. I confess how often I find myself filled with fear, anxiety, doubt, forgetting what I need most of all is you. Thank you for the provision of your son, Jesus, through whom we are brought into continual constant, unending presence. Thank you that you receive us. You take us in. You care for us. Give us grace to wait on you, to faithfully, with strength and courage, endure, confident of your providence, your sovereignty, and your love. May that be true here for Cornerstone, for each family in this community, and for every individual person today, wherever they are, whatever they're facing and struggling with for your glory. And as that happens here, we pray that the beauty of of the glory of Jesus Christ would just shine through your people and that many would see and come to be part of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.